Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of Leverage 2 Market Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. I'm here today with Whitney Johnson, and Whitney is recognized as one of the world's leading management thinkers, and she's best known for her work on driving corporate innovation through personal disruption. She's a former award-winning Wall Street equity analyst and the co-founder of a boutique investment firm with Clayton Christensen. She's the author of the critically acclaimed Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work, which was published in 2015, and you could also follow her on Twitter. So thank you for, um, for being here, Whitney. Well, thank you for having me. And, and you know, I love this idea about, about disruption because we hear so much about what's going on with disruption and Uber disrupting things in Airbnb, but you're talking a lot about personal disruption. So how do you define disruption in a personal sense? Well, you start with the definition that we're all very familiar with, and you alluded to it when talking about Uber is this idea of a disruptive innovation is a low-end or new market innovation that eventually upends an industry. One example for me that's most telling is Amazon. It, it started in the market in the 1990s. At that point, it was definitely low-end, this sort of silly little thing that Barnes & Noble and Borders obviously dismissed, and then it was incentivized to move up market, and then eventually it as we know, put borders out of business. And so it's taken this idea of a low-end or new market innovation and then applying this practice to us as individuals and using that and applying it to either our careers or to uh, disrupting ourselves inside of an organization so that the organization can itself become more innovative. And you talk about personal disruption, and, and a lot of us feel if we're disrupted, that's a bad thing, right? We want things to stay the same. So why is, is disruption such a good thing from a personal perspective? It's a good thing for a lot of reasons, but it starts with whenever you try, whenever you try something new, um, you get this squirt of dopamine. And so when you disrupt yourself, which is certainly trying something new because you're jumping from what you know and feel comfortable with to trying something you don't feel as comfortable with, you actually get this wonderful squirt of dopamine. So disrupting yourself actually feels good. Um, obviously, from there, it, it, there's a contagion effect because when you're willing to disrupt yourself, um, others around you, Jim Rohn said that we're the product of the five people that we spend the most time around, but that also means that the people who are around us are affected by us. And so if we're getting those squirts of dopamine from disrupting ourselves, then they, and we feel happier, then they will also feel happier as well. So there's this, this knock-on effect that comes when we're willing to try something new. So that's great. So kind of stretching ourselves sort of takes us to new horizons, and they're excited about that. So you talk about the S-curve. So tell us what the S-curve is, and a lot of us may have seen it, but can you help kind of explain how the S-curve relates to companies and individuals when it comes to personal disruption? How it applies to all of this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the S-curve was developed by Ian Rogers in, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1962, and he originally developed to be able to explain how ideas and products are adopted in the marketplace. And so if you can visualize in your mind the S and start at the bottom 
and it helps you understand that initially when a product or an idea is put into the marketplace, it's going to, over time, it looks like very little is happening. It's sort of flat. But then once you reach penetration um, of roughly 10%, you hit this tipping point, and you start to move into hypergrowth or that sleek, steep back of the curve. And so draw that up in your mind. And then at the top of the S, um, you'll notice that, again, time will move along, but it won't look like you're growing much. And that's the saturation point. And so what's interesting to me is that, you know, growth at the beginning slow, what that means from a psychological perspective, and this is really important from a personal disruption standpoint, is that you might feel discouraged, but if you know the growth is supposed to be slow, you're less likely to be discouraged. Then once you put in that time, you start to be competent, you feel confident, and that's that sleek part of the curve, and that's the exciting when all of your synapses are firing, it feels good, you're learning, you're really excited about the work you're doing. And then at the top of the curve, again, looks like not much is happening. At this point now, you're very competent at what you're doing, but it's almost become so easy that you become bored and you're no longer enjoying the feel-good effects of learning. And so what that's signaling to you is that you're now on this plateau and you can maybe say to yourself, oh, I'm just going to be comfortable here. But you also know that if a plateau, a plateau can also become a precipice and if you're actually quite bored, you can precipitate your own demise. So the best way to deal with that plateau is to actually jump to a new S and, and then start the process all over again. And by being disruptive, we're sort of jumping to that new S again and, and saying it's not okay to even rest on our laurels if we've done well, but it's time to kind of shake things up and do something different. Exactly. And and the, the image that I think of in my mind is not only that S of starting at the low end and, and, and um, tracing that up, but also think about waves. You surf one wave, and then when you've ridden that wave to the top, then it's time to move on and jump to a new wave or, or surf surf a new wave. And so you want to just do that process over and over and over again. Got it, got it. So tell me, so if I look back on your career, Whitney, you've you've been an equity analyst and, and you've been an award-winning equity analyst, and then you co-founded this investment firm with Clayton Christensen. What made you decide to talk about personal disruption now? Why, why at this point are you disrupting your career to do this? I think it's something that's really been building. Um, as you uh, noted, I was an equity analyst, and, and I actually started my career um, as a low-end disruptor because I arrived in New York um, on Wall Street having majored in music and had never set foot in a finance class. And so at that point in time, if I tried to walk onto Wall Street through the front door, people would have literally laughed me out the door. And so I walked onto Wall Street through the secretarial side door and then eventually worked my way up. I then discovered these, you know, frameworks of disruption and saw that they helped me understand what was happening um, with stocks I was covering, but I eventually came to realize that they, they really very much applied to individuals, um, that companies don't disrupt and people do. And so over the course of working with Clayton um, from 2006 to 2012, the more I applied the frameworks to investing and trying to understand products and services and companies and countries, I became more and more intrigued by this idea of these actually apply to us. And so I think I had really gotten to the top of my S curve and realized that it was time to jump to a new curve. And I just felt compelled to think more deeply and write about this and to talk about um, how 
if we are willing to pursue a disruptive course, whether as an organization or an individual, we are more likely to be successful. And in fact, the frameworks of disruption and the theory of disruption suggest that you're six times more likely to be successful and the revenue opportunity is actually 20 times greater when you pursue a disruptive course. Well, so I just want to say that again, six times more likely to be successful and the revenue opportunity is 20 times more likely when you're disruptive. Wow. Why Correct. do you think more people are not disruptive then? Is it, is it a fear of that? I think um, sometimes it's a fear, absolutely, because when you think about one of the first steps to, uh, to being disruptive, think about yourself again at the top of that S and considering jumping to a new S um, or to surf a new wave, the very first step is to be willing to take on um, what I call market uh, versus competitive risk. And when you take on competitive risk, you know that there's an opportunity out there. You know, there's, there's a job posting, for example, or you know that someone has projections and that there's a market opportunity for your product, right. um, but that competitive risk and you're much less likely to be successful. Market risk you don't know if there's a job. You have to create the job, or you don't know if there's people who want to buy your product. Um, but if you're willing to take on that market risk, you're more likely to be successful. The rub here is that competitive risk feels less risky because it's more certain. You mm. know there's an opportunity there. Market risk is um, is because it's less certain, it feels more risky. And so I think one of the, the big reasons that people don't jump, sometimes we're complacent, but then by and large, I don't really think that's the issue. I think almost always it's because it's scary. And so for me, I think one of the mantras for me, and I think for anyone who's looking at disruption, um, it's important to say if it feels scary and if it feels lonely because you're playing where no one else is playing, you're probably on the right track. Ah, okay. So that's good to know. So it's okay to be scared and, and feel a little bit isolated. That's interesting. Right. And in fact, it's a good signal that that you're you're going the direction that you need to go. If there's a lot of people around you, then it it may very well be that you're not pursuing something disruptive. Interesting. Yeah. And and it's funny because you know we hear Uber all the time, and of course Uber was so disruptive to the taxi and transportation industry. But then we hear the Uber of this and the Uber of that. And I don't think those folks are being disruptive. I think they're taking a model that Uber did, and they're just copying it. So, uh, you know, and, and maybe it'll work in some areas, but I don't know that all those markets are being disrupted the way Uber did or Airbnb or some of the others. So it's, it's no, fascinating. No, it's not. It's just that it's more comfortable. I mean, we, we like, again, it goes to that idea of, you know, um, we like competitive risk because it feels more certain. When you can say it's the Uber of this, you feel a sense of certainty, and it feels safer when, in fact, it's completely counterintuitive. It's safer when you're talking about and you say, I don't know what it's the Uber of. I mean, or you don't even know if it's an Uber like a right invention. Exactly. So you talk about, and this is fascinating, and you talk about in your book seven variables that can speed your progress along this S curve or along this learning curve. Can you talk a little bit more about what some of those are? Sure. The first is one that I just mentioned is this idea of taking on market versus competitive risk. And, mm -hmm. and think about it in terms of 
a willingness to play where no one else is playing. If you go back to the surfing metaphor, surfing a wave that no one else is surfing. Right. And that is um, one of the best ways to start when you're trying to try something new is to, to look at taking on the market risk. The second variable is to be willing to play to our distinctive strengths, and, and uh, not only to your strengths, but to the things that um, you do well that other people within your sphere do not. So, for example, you have expertise in marketing. Well, if you're in a room with 10 other marketers, that may be a strength of yours, but it's not necessarily a distinctive strength. Whereas if you put yourself in a fish-out-of-water situation with your expertise with nine other people who are coders, for example, or engineers, then that starts to be a distinctive strength. And I do spend a lot of time in the book helping people identify what their strengths are in the first place because even though we want to play to them, they tend to be elusive. Right. The third variable is to embrace constraints. Um, we tend to want wide open spaces, um, or we think we do, but whenever you're trying something new, we actually crave and need feedback. And one of the best ways to get that feedback is to impose constraints. And so one of the things I talk about that's actually essential to this entire process is to say, what are my constraints? Do I lack time? Do I lack money? Do I lack buy-in from people around me? Um, do I lack expertise? And turn those constraints into a tool of creation. In fact, a constraint becomes one of the inputs as you're trying to create um, a, a disruptive opportunity and play to your strengths. The fourth variable I talk about is battling entitlement. And this is one that I think is especially important. Um, whenever we're starting to climb a new curve, there, we do need to feel a sense of belonging. But as you start to see the fruits of taking your risks and, and playing to your distinctive strengths and embracing your constraints, it's easy to start believing that this is the way things should and will always be and become very entitled. And when you become entitled, you stop trying new things. And so right at that moment when you're in the sweet spot of the curve, um, you, uh, you risk sliding back down the curve um, because you're not um, being open to new ideas and trying new things. So battling entitlement, I think, is really crucial in this process. And then the fifth one is actually a follow-on to that is sometimes you have to step back in order to grow. Step back can be just step back, take a break for a minute, get some perspective. It could be um, making a lateral move professionally. It could be sometimes you get fired. That's certainly a step back, but almost always a step back can be something, not almost always, but frequently a step back can be a slingshot forward. The sixth is giving failure its due. We talk a lot about failure, but I think oftentimes we talk about it, we talk about celebrating failure, which is code for celebrate my failures, but I'm not going to celebrate yours. <laughs> and so I think it's really important for us to think about failure when we do fail, to grieve. Um, if the people that are working for us, we don't want them to fail or aren't allowed to let, not willing to let them fail, I think we have to look at ourselves first and see, you know, what kind of model we're presenting to them. And in fact, if we're not willing to let them fail, it may be that we don't have the right people. Because when we're really invested in someone, we not only want them to fail, but we push them hard that they will fail so that they can move, you know, move forward. And then the seventh and final variable is to be discovery-driven. As a disruptor, you're in search of a yet-to-be-defined market this idea of a market opportunity. And so we may want to plan out exactly where we're going to go, but in fact, um, you, you can't. And so you have to take a step forward and gather feedback and uh, adapt accordingly. The good news on this is, is that 70% 
of all successful new businesses end up with a strategy different from the one they initially pursued. Um, Groupon started out as a uh, uh, platform, an activism platform, um, where people could actually boycott retailers, which, of course, is very ironic. And oh, interesting. Netflix, I didn't know, know that. Yeah, isn't that <laughs> fascinating? Yeah. And Netflix started out as a door-to-door DVD rental service, and now we know it's an Emmy Award-winning content company. And right. so those are the seven steps. Um, you start at the bottom, you climb to the top, you're discovery-driven all along the way. And one of the things I really encourage people to do is, as they think about these ideas, is almost always one of those variables is one that they do exceptionally well, and then there's another variable that if they were willing to really focus on that right now, they could move up their current curve more quickly. That's wonderful. That's very helpful. I, I want to talk a moment about constraints because uh, I think sometimes we see constraints as holding us back, right? Um, you have a wonderful story about a children's book and constraints. If you could tell us a little about that. Oh, sure. Yeah, so... Um, there, there was an article that was published um, in 1954, and it was an, an editor at Houghton Mifflin read it, and it was titled Why Johnny Can't Read. And he was very concerned about this, and so he approached one of his, his friends who was in the publishing industry and said, you know, I need you, I need you to take 225 unique words that every six-year-old understands and write me a story that they cannot put down. Well, what's interesting is that this this um, fellow, you know, took this challenge, and it took him 18 months, and at one point, he became so discouraged, he almost gave up. But in 1957, when Theodore Geisel published The Cat in the Hat, it was an instant hit. And so years of reciting rhymes, of uh, playing to his distinctive strengths, of, of creating these cartoons, things that he did uniquely well – prepared him when presented with that 225-word constraint to reinvent children's literature. And Just so for me, love that story. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's such a powerful, powerful story, and especially because so many of us grew up learning how to read on Dr. Seuss. Yes, absolutely, and listening to our kids read it. So, yeah, and, exactly. and hearing those a thousand times and knowing those rhymes, that's wonderful. <laughs> So tell me, how does your book apply specifically to those of us in marketing? What can we do? And obviously we're trying to disrupt some of our clients, but to disrupt ourselves, what kind of thoughts do you have about marketing in particular? I think there's uh, two um, that come to mind right off the top of my head. I would say the first is on the uh, on the battling entitlement piece. I think from a from a marketing perspective and, and just putting a, a product or an idea out in the world, I think sometimes when we come up with an idea, we think we think and we believe, and, and oftentimes it is, it's brilliant, but um, the people around us don't know that yet, and there's sometimes this expectation that they'll just get it. It can be inside of our firm, it can be um, with customers, et cetera, and so I think this idea of battling entitlement, of doing the hard work that it takes to get buy-in for our ideas, whether it's translating that idea, speaking in a different language. If you're a marketing person, figure out how to talk the language of the financial people inside of your firm. Figure out how to talk the language of your customers so that while you know they need it, they understand why they need it and you're translating that. So I do think that battling entitlement certainly applies here. And I think the second way that it applies is really – on this idea of playing to your strengths, I mean, I think one of the things that we realize is that quite often 
<clears throat> the strengths that we have, we we undervalue what we are and overvalue what we aren't. And I think this is true for individuals and for companies. And if you really were to take stock of, of what the strengths of a business is, sometimes those superpowers that a company or an individual has are not on the resume and they're not on the website. And so I think as a marketer, you really have the opportunity to uncover what those strengths are, what, what those superpowers are, and make sure that you're leading with those. Because when you lead with your strengths, you're going to move up a learning curve much more quickly. That's great. That's wonderful. And I agree, absolutely. Uh, it, it's so important to um, to focus on, on where we can add some value and where we can do things that are going to be different than, than everybody else out there, and that's wonderful. So um, one question, too, and I'm a, I'm a pianist as well, so I love the fact that you started oh. in music <laughs> and, uh, and made it into Wall Street, and I love the piano um, the piano uh, analogies and the music analogies, et cetera, and there's lots of great stories in this book. I really enjoyed the book. Um, you talk a little bit about this recital you had. Uh, and how you were asked to play, and, and things didn't go so well in the beginning, but they worked out after all. So tell us a little bit about kind of how this idea of failing and giving failure its due really worked for you there. Yeah, so I think you're, there are two different um, examples, because I have so many failures, I can talk about them a lot. But I think one of, one of the um, stories I think you're referring to is, is when uh, one of my friends was uh, – doing a recording and yes, yes. she was um, singing and she had asked me to accompany her for a recording. So it was the first time I'd ever really gone into the recording studio other than when I was in college with our jazz band. And, and so <clears throat> because I'm not a professional pianist, once we got inside of the studio um, and I started playing, I found myself um, just starting to just you know, the self-talk, I just, it started getting really bad. You know, I can't do this. I'm terrible. I'm awful. And then the more I said that to myself, the worse it got. And, um, and so one of the things I realized is that, um, I'm going to tell this probably different than what it's in the book, but that's okay. Um, I, I, what I realized as I, as my friend talked to me, she said a couple things. Number one is just count as you make mistakes. Just say, oh, there's another mistake, and sort of wave to it as you go by the mistake. In other words, mistakes, of course, are going to be signposts along the road of trying to make this recording happen and just not make it such a referendum on me, but just part of the process of moving along. And then the other thing that I realized, and I, I don't think I said this in here, but I think it's important, is for some reason I had read the um, the New Testament words, charity never faileth. And I thought about that and this idea of it never fails because when you love something or love what you're doing enough, you can't fail. You can't fail in your mind. It's not failing. You'll never fail because you love it so much. You'll somehow, some way be able to convey to those around you what you're trying to to convey, whether it's music or words or writing or et cetera. So I think for me that day I realized two things. Number one is that it's important to understand that mistakes are part of the process and to pull the referendum piece around my worthiness out of it. And number two is that if I will love something enough, then it stops being about me, but it, 
it's about that process and that communication. And, um, and the essence of a great presentation is connection, not perfection. And I think that was really the lesson that I learned with that experience. Absolutely, and that's wonderful. So we've been talking to Whitney Johnson. Whitney is uh, an award-winning Wall Street equity analyst. She's the co-founder of a boutique investment firm, and she's the author of the new book, Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. So, Whitney, if people wanted to find out more about you and about your work, where would they go? I think the easiest place to go would be WhitneyJohnson.com. That's my website. Um, You can also find me on social media. I'm at JohnsonWhitney are at Johnson Whitney, and then, of course, you could go to Amazon and buy my book, Disrupt Yourself, as you just said. And those, um, and then you can email me, Whitney at WhitneyJohnson.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us. This has just been uh, really fascinating. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. This is Linda Popke. Until next time, thank you for listening to Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by Leverage 2 Market Associates. If you'd like to find out how powerful marketing results can transform your organization, contact us at www.leverage2market.com.